This episode is brought to you by 9AM Health. 9AM Health, diabetes care that fits your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Healing in Hindsight, your no BS source for thriving with diabetes. My name is Taylor Danielle, and today we have Dr. Gregory Dodell. I'm really excited to have him on the pod today because he is a endocrinologist, which for those of us in the diabetic space know is the number one doctor that you go and see when it comes to your diabetes. They are the specialists in diabetes. And so I was really excited for him to be willing to lend his time and his expertise on this episode. Dr. Dodell and I have a really great conversation around weight stigma in the medical profession and how we can partner as a patient and doctor to be able to have a better dialogue and pursue treatment that is going to be unique to the individual and not surrounded around different stigmas and biases. Thank you, Dr. Dodell, for your time and for your wisdom. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this episode. Of course, you guys, just another reminder that all of this is general advice. He is licensed in New York, so he's not your doctor. Please make sure that you see your own. If you have any questions about the things discussed here, general advice, it is not meant to be taken as personal medical advice. You'll need to check out your medical team and share those details and or if they have good, see if they agree and check in to make sure that it's the right treatment for you. So that being said, here's my conversation with Dr. Dodell. You're listening to Healing in Hindsight, your no BS source for thriving with diabetes. What's up, guys? I'm Taylor Danielle, and it's my goal to help millennial diabetics like myself live an amazing life without your diagnosis getting in the way. I get it. I was diagnosed back in 2015 with type 2 diabetes, and it was really hard to find people around my age to understand how to travel, socialize, or even have meaningful relationships. But I feel like with a focus on mindset, perspective, and nutrition, together we can take back our health and our lives. Consider this the red table talk, but for diabetics. Minus the entanglement, so. So let's do it. Hi, Dr. Dodell. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me on. It's great to meet you and, and be with you tonight. Yeah, same here. I've been a big fan of your Instagram account, more specifically the dancing videos. I'll just be quite honest, right. but I'm really excited to get to chat with you and pick your brain for personal expertise. It's actually funny. I see my endocrinologist on Friday, so it'll be Very nice cool. to get to chat with you and then compare notes uh, with him. So just to make everybody aware of who you are, I'd love if you could introduce yourself, let everybody know what you do, where you're from and what your passions are. All right. So I'm from LA originally. I always wanted to be a doctor from age six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. I don't know. Maybe I like my pediatrician. I don't know. Something happened where I was like, I just want to be a doctor and never wavered. I always wanted to be a pediatrician. And then I got to medical school and I had a great endocrinology professor who ran up and down the auditorium stairs and was like, endocrine's amazing. Like diabetes is fascinating, thyroid, this, that. And I'm like, yeah, it is pretty cool. And I got to clinicals and just really fell in love with the idea of taking care of people across their life spectrum and making a diagnosis and hopefully helping them on that journey of dealing with something. And, and I love what I do. I'm in private practice in New York City. And I feel very fortunate to, to be in this position to hopefully help people. That's awesome. Yeah, I am. Um, that was actually one of my questions is like, 
where did the idea of endocrinology come from? So it sounds like uh, you had a great inspiration and a professor. And that's really cool. I love hearing how teachers leave a lasting effect. But we, like never wavered from wanting to do anything else. It was always you knew you were going to go into medicine, like 100%, nothing, no other occupation ever crept up. I would have loved to be in the NBA, but you can't. I'm really I'm height challenged and <laughs> it just wasn't in the cards for me. The dancing, as you mentioned, the videos, I don't know, maybe like a backup dancer, but no, pretty much this is it. Wow, that's awesome. It's okay, as someone else who's also fun-sized, I get that uh, I wanted to be a pilot in the military at one point. I came from a military family on my mom's side and uh, my grandpa was in the Air Force and they settled in Bossier. My mom is from Chiang Mai, Thailand. And so we were very close to the Air Force base and the whole house would shake when I would go visit my <laughs> grandparents when they would fire up the jets. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's me. I'm be flying jets and not everything else like that. And then I get old enough to find out I'm not tall enough and then I wear glasses, and even though they're more reading glasses than anything, they're like, mm-mm, it's not perfect. Uh, we can't let you do that. I'm like, dream killers. And they're like, you can fly a helicopter. I don't want to fly a helicopter. I want to fly the jet. Like, yeah, I had no idea that there was a high requirement to fly a jet. Yeah, there's can't a high requirement. You the seats and all this stuff. Come on. You'd think it'd be that easy. It's a like, jet. <laughs> height requirements, and you have to have perfect vision, which I guess the vision the part is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, I should probably know what I mean. Yeah. I can see for the most part. It's just reading stuff. But anyways, so since you are a you know professional in the field of diabetes, I'm going to give you the same two questions that I give to all of my diabetic guests. So we'll do one now and then one towards the end. But the right. question that I would love to ask you is what is one misconception about diabetes that you just want to completely debunk right now and just be like, stop the madness. This isn't true. We need a different perspective on this. Yeah, I think a lot of people, whether they have diabetes or not, maybe have the misconception that it's life, especially with type 2, that it's lifestyle mediated, that it was like somehow their fault or something they could have been doing differently. And if they had done something differently, they wouldn't be in this position of having to deal with diabetes. That's totally false. There's a huge genetic component to it. There's a lot of things that are beyond our control that you know, we develop illnesses from. So I think that's an important thing. And I know you talk about self-acceptance and all these things are so important in dealing with diabetes. So I think just straight off the bat, this is not my fault. Maybe there's things I could have done differently. I didn't. There's a genetic, there's other things. And let's just, let's take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm digging more into the genetic side of things because both of my parents also have type 2. And especially like learning about Modi, things like that. There's a huge side of me that's, I wonder if no matter what I did, if I had done my lifestyle changes the way that it was supposed to be, would I still end up with the same kind of diagnosis? And granted, I understand I have an advantage to those who are more insulin dependent to be able to adjust some things. I would like to, you know, challenge myself to manage holistically and off medication, but I've come to terms of, you know what, it's okay if I'm on medication. And if that's what it takes to keep me healthy, cool. Except for metformin. I was glad when my endo took me off. Yeah. I don't want to be on that for the rest of my life. That yeah. stuff is not fun. Personal opinion here. Thank you for that. I really appreciate your perspective on that, which leads me to want to just add to anybody listening. Although Dr. Dodell is a professional in the, medic in the Medicare system and does uh, work in endocrinology, he is licensed in New York. So this is general advice. So please, no matter what you hear, Take it with a grain of salt and go talk with your own medical team in your state and town so that way they can give you uh, the best treatment possible. This is just us chatting and me picking his professional brain. Absolutely. So, Thank you for that. I would just also just piggyback on what we were talking about, which is 
there's no shame in taking medication. We're so fortunate to have all these medications now that are coming out and people can live their life and go out with friends and family and there's culture and all this stuff that people don't have to give up on and can use the medications to their advantage in addition to figuring out the right pairing of foods and the right movements that they enjoy. But it doesn't mean that you have to give up on all the things that you love. And I think having that that notion creates more stress and more stigma, and that doesn't serve the control of diabetes. So I would just add that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I will say when I was first diagnosed, the first like two years, it'll be six years in November, I was gung-ho about coming off medication. I was just like, no, I type two is the one where I can like possibly get a handle on it. And that was like a huge mission, but I went about it all the wrong way. It, it was more so me, I'm going to take my medication today and then not tomorrow. And then like just completely disregarding my, you know, primary care's advice on what she prescribed me. But I'm finding more and more that it is important to work with the advice given from my medical team, especially now that I have added an endocrinologist. I didn't know I was supposed to see one for the longest because my primary just, she just took on everything. So I'm like, okay, that's all I need to do. And it wasn't until I got deeper into the community and started to talk with people who have other types that I was like, oh, there's a whole person who specializes in what I have. Oh, okay, I should probably go do that. So for the first time this year, I saw one and he completely scrapped everything. He was like, uh-uh, like I was on glipizide and- Gonna guess, I was like, gonna guess that you were on glipizide or something yep. like that. Yep, she- and I'm uh, not hating on glipizide, but that's where an endocrinologist comes in because yeah. there are options that don't cause low blood sugar if you happen to be running around or exercising and not eating that day. There's newer medications that are glucose dependent. So if the blood sugar is high, they kick in, mm -hmm. but if it's not, they won't cause low blood sugar. So that in and of itself is a better way to approach diabetes where you can live your life and not be running around and having low blood sugar. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. And one of the things that I'm going to talk with him about this weekend, because I don't know if it's my CGM or my medication, I've been having to do more manual ones, but he put me on uh, Sinjardi and Ozampic. Mm -hmm. And the first round, because I actually came off of it for about three weeks because my insurance changed, so I couldn't get any of my refills without it being like Ridiculous. stupid expensive. Okay. Yeah. And so he was like, okay, let's restart because the pen was once a week. And the first round, I noticed the significant drop in appetite and that scared me. And even though he told me about it, it's still weird to feel like, Doc, you don't understand. I love food. Like yeah. aside from any of this, I love food. So like to not get to the end of the day, I'm like, did I eat today? Did I? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And this round now, having been back on it for a full uh, four weeks again, I've had way more lows than I have highs. And highs obviously was the main thing that I was treating, but now I'm noticing my CGM going off. Now, granted, I can't adjust it to be lower than the 70 that they targeted onto. If it hits 69, it's going off. But right. I've seen like a lot of 65s and I'm like having to grab my manual meter and be like, okay, I know this is 20, 30 points off. Right. Is this right? And and so I was like, okay, I've been mostly in range now with this new medication regimen and it's less, which I appreciate, but I was starting to freak out the other day because I'm like, I'm having constant lows and I'm drinking all the juice. What is happening? <laughs> That's always a, an interesting thing. Um, well, it was interesting because historically it's all been about the A1C, right? The three-month mm -hmm. blood sugar average. And you have the older patients in their 90s who'd be like, talk the A1C is useless, like yeah. I could be 60 one minute and 250 the next and my A1C is perfect. And you're like, all right, bravo, you're well controlled. 
But no, like up and down doesn't feel good for people and whatever, and they're right. And then the time and range now is really what we're focusing on in addition to the A1C. But yeah, if you're having lows and you're not going to feel good, I would say that's not optimal control. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, actually, that I just thought of is what are you seeing in the medical field just from your day to day of seeing patients of how you help them balance the strive for A1C? Because that's what I'm going to go see my doctor about is I haven't had my A1C. It's time. And my last one, I think it was 7.5, which was lower than the last one, which was like 8 points on which is great. Like I've always technically been out of control, but it's It's like feeling to see the numbers get better. Yeah, yeah. But it's also feels like this sprint every 90 days of, okay, I'm just doing this so that way when I go finally take my test, it'll show that I'm okay and then I can relax a little bit versus how do you teach to staying that time and target? Because the CGM did help. I I didn't have one previous years. It's my first year having one. And I do feel myself feeling better more about my time and range and that my doctor works with that versus when I was working with solely my primary, it was all about my A1C. And if I wasn't dropping my A1C, then we're going to have to switch this medication and that. And I ended up on what Combaglize and Glipizide at one point, And it just kept feeling like just the shifting of medication versus right. using technology in a better way to figure out how to find that happy middle. So how do you work with cases like that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's about the day-to-day. And even with patients on insulin, I'll talk to them. You can tweak your insulin based on what your readings are, postprandial readings, what they are in the morning, your fasting numbers. I'm only seeing you every three to six months. Like it's, you're living this, let's like educate you and let you figure out what works for you and what doesn't, because I don't want you waiting three months to like make a move. Obviously reach out to me if what are your questions or whatever. But that's what we talk about. A1C is, you know, not the end all be all. And it's obviously important. And that's what all the studies have been based on, like trying to avoid complications. All the data is based on if the A1C is under eight, well, then they came up with the guidelines of under seven to give a little cushion. And that's what we have all been trained for. And that's what we discuss with patients. But this time and range is certainly a new thing that we're all getting used to paying attention to. And I think that's important because as I was saying before, the A1C can be misleading. Time and range is not misleading because that's real-time data. Right. Now, yeah. with time and range, I know that for a, a lot of us who use things like constant glucose monitors, that's normal speech for us. But I had no clue of it until I actually started using one. So how do you help manage people having that time and range if they don't have access to a CDM? Or they like It actually took me a while <laughs> to get a CDM. I and mean, it wasn't until I saw my dietician that she was able to give me like a sample, if you will, until I got to see uh, my endocrinologist. So how do you work with patients on figuring out that time and range if you don't have the most updated technology? Yeah, you won't really know the time and range without the continuous glucose monitor because you'll just have different points during the day that you'll be able to see what it is. I guess theoretically you could do four or five finger sticks and figure out the average and whatever and calculate it. We in our office put CGM on people for two weeks, like this professional CGM. So at least if they don't want to wear the CGM all the time, which I totally get, They can do two weeks, I think insurance covers twice a year, so they can see at least for that cumulative one month a year what their numbers are 24-7. Wow, I had no clue that was even an option. That's an option. Um, Most of the CGM companies will provide endocrinologists, I believe, and certified diabetes educators with what you said, like a sample or a professional CGM that people can wear for two weeks and, and get the data that way. 
Wow, that's really cool. So if you are never experienced a CGM, hit up your endocrinologist and see if you can try one out because I knew I was just ready to try it. I, I didn't yeah. know how, but after seeing so many people with it and I'm like, I've been told my dietitian, I was like, I have to prick myself so many times to just get a feel for where I'm at. I see a lot of groups that talk about like, eat to your meter and I'm like, that would require burning through a lot of strips and strips yeah. are not exactly cheap that that kind of became an outdated way but a lot of people just opt to do that because it fits for their lifestyle it's what they can afford things like that so good Absolutely. to know that you can um, yeah. get for that. that even that two weeks so you can track your day-to-day what's going on like different routines that day different movements different nutrition and all that stuff and just most of us live pretty kind of consistent routines for the most part and they'll give a lot of feedback for that two weeks and if you don't want to wear a cgm all the time which as i said i get at least you'll get some good info that way yeah yeah i don't i don't know how i would not have it honestly because I had my first sensor fall off and I have the freestyle and they were great their customer support team got a new one sent out to me so I didn't have to burn a refill if you will but even still I spent three days three to four days and I'm losing my mind because I'm like I have no clue where I'm at and when I go to sleep I, I never even thought about how my numbers changed during my sleep. I just knew my primary was like check in the mornings and most of the time I was high. So it was just now that I know that, oh, I didn't even think about if I dropped low in my sleep, what do I do? And I live by myself and my partner uh, is 10 minutes away from me. So it's just, I don't have any way of knowing that I might be in a a life-threatening situation um, without it. And so it's been really interesting just seeing how quickly the technology has improved my day-to-day just because I know, I mean, I can actually like pivot in the moment versus by the time that I get to my doctor three months later and they're like, your A1C went up. And I'm like, I don't really know where to pinpoint this. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious now, I've seen on your Instagram a lot where you talk about the Hayes movement, um, health at every size, and you know how it should be brought up more in when people are going through their medical school versus like afterwards, things like that. How did you come in contact with this whole concept and what were ways that you implemented it into your practice? Yeah, I feel very fortunate that I'm married to a psychologist who works from this perspective, Alexis Connison at the Anti-Diet Plan. And for 10 years or so, she's been telling me like she works with emotional eating and intuitive eating and, and mindfulness and all these things. And she was like, this is what I'm hearing from my clients. And there's really a lot of harm being done from the medical community and people with diabetes and PCOS and just in general, people avoiding the doctors and Doctors not asking them about history of disordered eating and just making assumptions based on different body size and shapes and all these things and just educating me that way. And then I read her book, A Draft, and it just clicked. She laid out all the research on weight stigma and all this, all this stuff. And, and I just was like, this is really, this is the way I should be practicing. After a decade, I finally get it. But, but yeah, that's how it came about. I don't know for sure that I would be in this position of understanding this Hayes weight inclusive model if it weren't for her, just because the training is so ingrained of this weight centric model. And and that's just, that's what we know. And that's our training. There's no fault in that. It's just that's, that's the research that's taught. And I think having this other perspective is an option. And for me, I feel like the way I'm talking to my patients from this perspective is very helpful. And I'm hoping that's going to be more of an option for people across the board. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to know from you because I explained in one of my previous episodes, my first appointment with my endocrinologist. And I say, I feel like I opened up a can of worms in a way because I did in in a way ask. I just didn't expect for it to be this swift. Oh, here it is. It's that simple. Be done. So I said, Hey, I don't know what is a healthy weight for me? Because I'm health centric now. I used to be about fitting the number and I realized that number has so many complications to it that it can't be the only thing that I rely on. How do I know that I'm in the good sweet spot? Because I want to live doctor, but I don't want to sit here and feel like I'm in constant maintenance of my body. And he brought out the BMI chart thing. He was like, I really feel like if you just drop 40 pounds, we can wean you off the medication and you'll be fine. And I got super defensive, like just immediately. And I'm just like, he's like, yeah, I just need you to do cardio 45 times a week. And then I want you to download this carb. I said, I'm, uh, I'll tell you right now, the apps aren't happening. Been there, done that, not doing yeah. it. I, yeah. I don't really keep a lot of junk in my house, honestly. So I'm like, I know kitchen wise, I'm doing okay. Yes. Should I delete a couple of my delivery apps? Sure. And I've been better about it. For the most part, I'm very conscious of what I eat. And so I remember going back to my car and I just got really emotional because I'm like, I feel like I'm back in high school again, where like I'm being teased for my size and I'm medically being teased for my size. And I think I look great. So like, why do I need to, I don't even know if I'd look good with 40 pounds less. I'm having all of these thoughts. So like, how do you navigate what you're taught in research and data basically, which can be very cold and pair that with understanding sometimes the traumas that people have gone through when it comes to their weight? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think number one, weight is not a behavior, right? So you can't just wake up and say, I'm going to change this as in the weight. You can work to change other things. Like I want to find a way to move that feels better. I want to figure out how to pair my foods better. So my blood sugar is better. The weight may go down with those changes. It may stay the same or it may even go up because people that have uncontrolled diabetes actually lose weight. And that's not exactly a healthy thing either. So it's finding what works for you. And in the whole BMI thing, which I'm sure you're well versed in as a lot of your listeners are, but that came on, uh, came about, it was never meant to be like an individual marker for health. Like it was meant for white European men as like a population based thing. So it wasn't meant to be for like even women or people of different races or different muscle mass and bone density. It's terrible. And in the UK and other places have have basically come out and said this should not be a marker for health. And I think in the UK, they're even talking about not using it anymore in their National Health Service because it creates such a a stigma. So that that's that component. And then I think just focusing on the stigma, that's like how I've looked at the research and I'm still learning and I'm like, jumping on the shoulders of all the people and the activists have been doing this for decades and I'm just trying to do my part, which is basically how detrimental the stigma is around around weight and the high amount of eating disorders that occurs in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes and recognizing that if we want to have the best outcomes for our patients, we need to partner with them and reduce stigma. And I mm-hmm. think that focusing on weight rather than behaviors is the way to go. And that's that's kind of how I'm looking at it. And I think most medical societies at this point are recognizing the harm of stigma and the data is very impressive on the detriments of weight cycling and stigma. And I think that's a common thread that we can all hold on to. And it's just the question of like, how do we deal with it? 
Yeah. Do you feel like there is room for weight to be a factor in some ways? Because I have heard several different perspectives where it's someone is considered, I think the conversation I was in, we were talking about the shows, my 300 pound life or something like Mm -hmm. that. It's okay. If someone's at that point, is there a point where you feel like it is necessary to say, Hey, the amount of excess fat, even just trying to change that verbiage. I even told my doctor, if you would have just told him to lose 5% fat, I probably would have drive with you better. <laughs> but stuff why, like that. Why would you? It would have been different. Because he led with the excess fat leads to increased insulin resistance. And since that is what I'm fighting against is that my body's just a lot more resistant to insulin. It's not that mm-hmm. I'm not making it. I was like, okay, that makes sense. And I can understand that. And that takes out this larger number of, I'm like 170 and he's going to need you down like 140. And I'm like, okay, but muscle mass, bone mass, water weight. Subcutaneous I think- fat. So subcutaneous fat is fat. In the gluteal region, the arms, the legs, different body compositions. So all those variables. I think that, yeah, what you're saying, totally, that's your experience. But I think my approach would maybe be something of the ways to reduce insulin resistance are via these behaviors. Because just telling someone they need to lose weight or diet or exercise is just, I never thought of, oh, gee, I never thought of that. So we need to partner and find out pragmatic things that'll work for people and and they'll all reduce insulin resistance and insulin resistance occurs across body weight spectrum. You have people, women with PCOS that have BMIs of 22 that have insulin resistance. You have people on medications that have insulin resistance. I think that's the approach because I, again, telling someone they need to lose weight, it's not that effective. Telling people like, Hey, can you go walk? 10 minutes, do you like walking, do you like running, whatever, and partnering and figuring it out, I think that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. It was even more fun because as we're talking about stigmas, one thing that comes up a lot are scare tactics. It happened with my mom. They've used insulin as a threat to her. And it, it's what sent her into checking her food and all these kind of things like that. And she came off half her meds, but it was just like, that feels like a punishment. And so in the same appointment, he was like, I really feel like you could reverse your diabetes. I don't, and I know we're still trying to figure out what that word looks like for right. those who are not um, insulin dependent, but he was like, but if you gain the weight back, it'll come back and then even worse. And it was just like, okay. So now it's like a scaring me to stay skinny. almost. And it was just like, that's not Great. And trying to, how do you go about unraveling all of this kind of, just taught thinking of the only way to get people to to wake up is to scare them into it versus to work with them on that. What is your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, specifically regarding weight, I think that scaring people about weight, there's just, it's just so, it's so loaded. And, and there's a reason why a huge percentage of, of diets fail long-term because a lot of it's not sustainable. We all have this metabolic scent point of like where our weight is and where our body wants to be. And just the way our society is in diet culture, I think people want to be smaller, right or wrong. And if it was easy, you'd have a lot smaller people running around. So it's not easy. And I think factoring in the genetics and the medications and all the other things that go into it, a lot of it, which is like out of people's control, that's difficult. And I think a scare tactic in an area that people don't necessarily have control over 
is detrimental. People can control how much they move, mostly. They have the privilege and the able body to do or with the not able body, there's things they can do in a chair and whatever. Or with eating, there's, there's obviously other factors with having access to healthy food and all this stuff. But most people hopefully can have access to those things. And, and that's what I think focusing on is better than a scare tactic, which increases cortisol level and stress and may be more likely to have the person not want to come back to see the doctor. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because as you said, like every three months of going for your report card or going for your to get weighed and like all these things, you didn't do your homework. So like you want to skip the appointment. I think that maybe there's a better way. Yeah. So how, what would you improve upon in, in that whole cycle, whether it's like from the beginning of when you're in medical school to when you're in practice, what would be key areas that you would adjust so that way going into the doctor can feel more like working with a partner than it is like going to the principal's office and getting in trouble? What would be things that you would implement? There's a, if we want to talk about weight, there's a huge amount of weight bias that happens from day one in medical school. People come in, we live in our society and people come in already with biases about weight. And the data shows that people in larger bodies, the office visits are shorter with doctors. They get less discussion about behavior modifications. They're labeled as lazy and non-compliant. The data is out there that says all this. So I think that has to be addressed, obviously. And if someone's walking into the exam room and look, we all have stereotypes and we all you know, have our biases. If that's already the thought, you know, that what does that mean as far as a partnership? You're already thinking like the person's not going to follow my advice or they're lazy or whatever it is. So I think you have to, we have to check ourselves. And the same thing that's going on with racism. The American Medical Association is coming out with a lot of platforms for that. Certainly there's a lot of racism that goes on across the board, but certainly in the medical community also. We got to check ourselves. And that's the way the care is going to be better. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I've seen just in my own life and coming from a black and Asian household is that, especially for the men, I'm not going to no doctor. They're not going to tell me anything that I haven't already heard or I don't already know. And then especially with something like diabetes, where it's not always visible to you, then you hit that too late point. And so I think that's one of the things, especially for marginalized communities, that having to rebuild that trust because mm -hmm. of so many years of just different things in medical going completely wrong, you know, and so having to figure out ways to have those conversations so people can get the help that they need. So absolutely, I, I do uh, fully feel that it starts with retraining our brains. And when we go into these spaces where we're here to learn to treat people, we have to unravel all of the biases that we've picked up along the way. So I want to switch gears a little bit to talk more about your practice and the things that you've been doing. You're super active on social media, which I am honestly trying to figure out where do you find the time <laughs> between helping people and taking time to yourself? I know you're huge on mindfulness and then also educating people in a fun and lively way. Like what does your day look like? How do you pack all this in? Yeah, I'm a little burnout this week. So I think it's just setting my own boundaries as far as things go, not putting so much pressure on myself to do a post or whatever. And I think there is that kind of like internal drive because I want to be doing those things. And then also the external, like I didn't do a reel two weeks ago or whatever. And people are like, hey, it's Friday. Are you okay? Like I didn't see... And I'm like, yeah, just taking a day. Like, I'm just, it wasn't feeling it. On last week, last Friday, I did sit on the dock of the bay, just take a deep breath. I didn't feel like dancing. So 
I think that's it. It's just checking ourselves and do making sure we're doing things for the right reason and not like succumbing to like the external stuff or like the ego and being like, it's 930 at night. Like I have work to do. There's emails, but like I'm tired and I'm just going to like not do it. And like, I got a mind. Okay. I got to do this. I got to do that. Like we all have it. So that's what I'm, what I'm working on. It's the work in progress. Yeah. And did you start your account with the intention of of what you're doing now or was it for your practice at first or, or, or how did it morph into this thing where not only are you practicing in New York, but you have this other kind of fan base, if you will, of paying attention to what you're saying? Yeah, no, I started, I don't know, like 2014, 2015, let's call it just like posting pictures of like, I'm at the farmer's market, like here's this like Trulicity or whatever pen or whatever. And I, and then I stopped for a while cause I was just like, I wasn't inspired by what I was doing. And I was like, I'm just like another dude out there, like taking pictures of like my food or whatever I was doing. And then I, so I kind of gave up on it. And then with Alexis and reading her book and like following her platform and like all the stuff that she's doing. And then me just getting expi- inspired about talking about this stuff and feeling like, okay, this like being like the white thin doctor that I am and being able to like have this voice different from a lot of other stuff out there and trying to help this movement and hopefully do some good. Then I got inspired again to do it. So like February or March or whatever it was, I was like, sat down like with Alexis one night and I was like, I want to like go for this and I'm inspired and let's just run with it. So that's what I've been doing. But just going back to what you were saying before, I was like, initially I was like posting five, six days a week in a row. And I was like, I just can't do this anymore. So now I'm like, all right, if I do like a couple a week that are like good and quality, that works for me. And that's it. That's awesome. And it's how I found you. And thank you for the time and energy that you've put into those posts. It's time consuming. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I was actually telling somebody earlier today, I I have the podcast, but diabetes isn't just what I am. And I have a whole separate live stream show that I do. And I, I... do group coaching for women and self-acceptance oh, and body acceptance. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot and to have to not have to, but feel like you're only really seen if you're posting something and having to balance that out. It's definitely important to work in breaks, which is why I purposely do the podcast in seasons. Cause I knew I was just like, Oh, that's <laughs> totally the deal. I'm like, yeah. just was thinking like today, I was like, if I don't like do some Instagram posts this week, before I was doing this, I was still like seeing my like 20, 25 people a day and like hopefully helping them. And that's enough for me at this moment. Cool. Like I'm doing something and like I'm here in my office and that's great. And if I do something extra, cool. If not, like not. Yeah, absolutely. Pep talk to myself. But anyways, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> no, totally. I think uh, we got to sometimes take our best advice and give it to ourselves because yeah. I, I have a little bit of help on the audio side and we both have to sit there talking about my dad and hey, dude, we got to take a break. It's okay. If things aren't, uh, if, if you're getting overwhelmed, whatever, like it's okay. Because I think I had one episode that I didn't get up on time and I'm like freaking out. I'm thinking like, oh, everything's going to crash and burn. I'm going to lose everybody. And nobody batted an eyelash. And I was like, oh, okay, that's good that uh, the sky didn't fall. If you want to post mine like a couple weeks late, take a break, (laughs) go for it. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, uh, it helped me realize that like I'm making all this stuff up in my head and people respect what you do because it's authentic. And I think that's the important thing is take the break. Yeah. Um, And tie that back into health. So all that pressure and all that stress 
releasing cortisol and like potentially meaning like not sleeping as well and all those things raise blood pressure and all these things raise blood sugar so like that's something to recognize also and that's that can be detrimental so yeah taking space for yourself is really important so important so i'm curious so when did you start your private practice have you always been in private or did you do the clinic thing for a while because i know that's how a lot of us come into contact is that those quick fast i see you for 10 minutes and then all right cool hope everything goes well kind of thing so how did you um, get into your own private practice yeah so i was really fortunate as i said i want to be a doctor since i was a kid and i always had this kind of like old-fashioned mindset of having my own practice and i say old-fashioned because most of the people in my generation are not going into private practice, but picture like house calls and like a doctor's bag. That's like what I envisioned like growing up and just knowing all my patients and their families and the ins and outs and whatever. So going through fellowship. So we, we come out of medical school. We do three years of internal medicine training in the hospital. And then we do two or three years of an endocrine fellowship, which is like the extra specialty board certification. And I had a young attending who happened to be in a private practice here in New York who was like leaving and her boss was 75 at the time and she's like, oh, you got to go meet Dr. Benevitz. And I was like, yeah, for sure. He's an amazing doctor, been practicing for 30 something years and we just hit it off and he's like, I'm going to retire at 80. So if you want, join me and in five years, run with it. So I just lucked out. Yeah. So. I was with him from 2012 to 2017, so learned under this great doctor for five years. And then in 2017, he said, I'm out. And yeah, four years later, I've just been running with it. That's awesome. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any plans to expand? Do you see yourself being elsewhere besides New York? I know I already told you, I was like, man, I wish you were here so you can just be my endo because that would be great. And I'm in Texas. So it would be a long flight to get there because I know that there are others like you, but it's nice to be able to visually see somebody who is fighting against the stigmas that we face all the time. And especially with something um, as delicate and intricate as diabetes and just trying to feel normal despite having this. It's really refreshing to see a doctor who is practicing every day and is providing care in a way that that works with people and not against them. And I'm sure plenty of people would love to come see you, but any plans? I'm hoping that I'm not going to be like a dime a dozen or whatever the expression (laughs) is. Like, I hope like everyone's just going to practice like me because like we're all in it to take care of people. And I'm fortunate and I have so many great colleagues. And I think we're all like on our own mission of the art of medicine and like what works for us and we all want to take care of people the best way we can and hopefully all our dialogue is helping not only the patients but colleagues and whatever we can hopefully have the best outcomes for everyone yeah Um, definitely do i plan to leave new york no but i think that hopefully with the telemedicine and all the stuff that's going on if bureaucracy can figure it out, which medicine is not different in New York than it is in Texas, but like the way it is right now, there's, you can't practice across state lines and you got to be licensed and the medical malpractice insurance, all that stuff. But hopefully that's going to change. And there could be something of like, come see me in the office once a year, if you can like swing that and the rest of the time, let's just do virtual, especially with diabetes, because it's so data driven. And even if you someone's in a different state, if they have a primary care doctor that's local, that's doing their blood pressure and they're getting their eyes examined and all the other stuff that goes with diabetes care, if I'm just managing the the data points and helping adjust medication, 
I should be able to do that without physically seeing the person. So, yeah. Yeah. That would be great. I, I am, I mean, my therapist had the same conversation because I'm thinking about leaving Texas to live outside the state. I've, I've been here my whole life. And so I was like, easier. actually me and my partner supposed to be visiting some friends up there. So I'll have to hit you hit up. up. Uh, maybe. Up. Sure. <laughs> it might be now you don't have to come see me as like a patient. <laughs> we can hang out. I can show you yeah. the cities, you know? That would be awesome. Seriously. I've, I've actually had a couple of people move to New York that I know that I'm like, okay, I actually you, wanted to go to NYU did? really bad. No, I, I thought NYU was going to be the reason why my mom was even like me and your dad will figure it out if you can just get in because I went to school for the two years that I went for art. I used to love drawing and painting. I still do, but not yeah. as heavily as I did. And that's what I thought I got voted in high school, most likely to open an art gallery, all these things. Cause um, being creative is just, it's yeah. who I am. And I don't even remember how I came into the idea of NYU, I just, it came into my space and then they representatives from the school came down and held like a whole meeting thing at one of the hotels, my junior year of high school. And I was like, yeah. mom, please take me. And she said, yeah, if you, I, I want to go. And ever since I'm just like, man, I really want to get to New York. I wanted to have an like artist loft and everything. I just love the culture there. And I've got some great friends yeah. who've moved down and some who've moved back up. And we have a friend who him and his girlfriend, they're outside of the city because they're on like 90 acres. So I'm like, I know it's somewhere clearly outside the city. Yeah. And so they were like, yeah, come see us, come hang out. And then, so we're trying to figure that out. I think we pegged it for August actually. Now that I think about it where we spend some time with them and then like a few days in the city so we can see all the things. And yeah, I just want to eat out. my way through New York. <laughs> just That's all I really want to do is just eat my way through the city. I've heard so best. many good yeah. things about the food. I, so, I literally like, yeah. could just not leave my block. And there's a Japanese, Italian, Chinese, you name it, Greek, Turkish, everything, like within a two-minute walk, bagel, everything. Pizza. That just sounds amazing. Like, yeah. I just hear so many cool things about New York outside of just the big hollywood stuff. But the culture is a huge part. And I was a big Sex and the City fan, so I was like, you got to have it. There you go. Right? But yeah, no, definitely would, would love to see telemedicine really pick up in a ways. Because I feel like especially if you like yourself in private practice, take the time to build such rapport. And the only thing that's holding back from you continuing to treat somebody is space, which I think after this past year, we see that doesn't have to be a factor anymore. And it would be wonderful to be able to keep your same medical team, no matter where you move, at least in the States. I, I could get overseas, get a little yeah, more different, but right. at least in the States, that opens up more options to reach more people too, because I get personalities aren't meant to match up with everybody. And I sometimes feel like that plays a role too. It's like, hey, my insurance works with this particular clinic, like, like Baylor, Scott and White, but the only doctors that I have available are people that I just don't mesh with, or I feel you know shameful every time I go and see this one particular one, and it's going to take forever to find another referral for a different one. If telemedicine could really expand that, then you're able to start to, I think, get the right people uh, advocating because we're looking for them. It took me a minute, actually, to find the guy that I'm with because the uh, referral that my doctor gave me didn't roll with my insurance. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. it's got to be with an insurance because this is right, expensive. Yeah. I went on a whim because he had a lot of great reviews and he was nice. So despite the conversation we had, and I, I have a three-strike rule, I'm like, okay, I'll see you three times. And it's pretty good. Can't, three times is like no joke. Yeah, I think I had to get over my fear of advocating for myself because I did feel my own stigma against those who pursued the title of doctor, especially in medicine, because sometimes you got this air of I'm better than you. And so I know what your body is doing, even though you've never looked at my chart. And so right. you should just do what I say. And I got to a point where 
um, actually the first doctor that I saw before I was diagnosed, it was a year before I was diagnosed. And I was like, Hey, I think I'm coming up on this. I talked to my dad the previous year about the symptoms and he monologued the entire appointment. He didn't listen to me at all. And pretty much just said I was making up in my head and in and, and short and gave me a whole speech on nutrition and stuff like that. And I'm like, can you just give me the damn test and see if I'm diabetic or not? That's yeah what I came here for. And then learning that, hearing about doctors refusing to do tests and it's, you're not supposed to do that. If you ask for it, they're supposed to give it. I'm like, what? And so just seeing all of these things happen and hearing these stories about not being listened to, it it makes it hard. And so I just decided for myself, I was like, you know what? These are human beings. Cause my dad, you know, wanted to be a musician for a really long time and still is like the famous side of things. Yeah. And he told me celebrities are people too. We just appreciate their gifts to a greater magnitude. And so I took that same saying with people like lawyers and doctors and things like that. It's not that you're a better human being than me. You just chose to make this what you're uh, an expert at, but it does not make you better than me. And so I finally started having real conversations with my doctors. I come in with a list because I know I only got 15 minutes with you. So here are the things I need to talk about. Here are the things I want to go through. And even if we have a, a thing where it's like, hey, this doesn't work for me or whatever, I take the way that we're able to navigate through that disagreement as, okay, if I'm doing too much, tell me to sit down somewhere. Like, you should be able to do that. But at the same time, if I'm telling you the context of my life, hey, this doesn't work for me. Hey, doc, I'm not downloading another car back. I didn't pay for my fitness pal for two years now and barely touched it. I've used, right. what's it? The, the There was a keto one. I've used a bunch of them. And just, if I have to scan my food before I eat it, I'm going to throw my phone. And then right. I'm coming to you for the, like, right. it, it's just those type of things. I just like, I can't, I can be real with everybody else, but not my, my medical team. I feel like, slightly the way you work for me. And and what I'm needing is to, I'm paying to tap into your mind and for you to look at this data and understand what's going on. Cause I don't know how, so I need you to work with me. And if, if our personalities don't jive, that's okay. I'm totally fine finding another one. Just make sure my prescriptions are refillable. <laughs> yeah. And I had to learn that the only, not the only way, but one of the biggest ways to do that is advocate and don't base everything from one interaction. Because I also don't know what y'all's days look like. You guys see so many people in such a short amount of time and just how, you know, I worked in customer support for over 10 years. So you'll catch that one person on the phone who just goes off on you and you're just like, what did I do to you? And it's actually, I had a really shitty day and you just told me some news I didn't want to hear and you were the person to catch it. It's not you, it's the news. And so that's when I came up with my three strike rule. Three visits. And if I just feel like I cannot work with you or we can't get on the same page, cool. I've I've given it the fair shot and I can bow out and go find somebody else. That's what I do. And I tell people to try out because I know sometimes now, unless somebody just absolutely just offends you. Right. But for the most part, despite how I felt and as triggering as that conversation was, I was able to rationalize. I partially asked for it in a way. I just didn't expect it to come out that way. And I'm getting a new medication regimen. So I still need him to help me balance that. It was very weight driven in the combination that he gave me. But I'm like, I won't knock it. Let me try it. I have seen good numbers. I have seen good time and range. This is a once a week. <laughs> so I'm getting my blood work done tomorrow and see him Friday. And we'll see how that conversation goes from there. Cause that to me will be the big tell is, all right, let's review the report card and see what he says. Yeah. I think that that's a good point too, about like the regimen being weight driven because a lot of the newer medications work really well. And I use them like 
a lot. Like you mentioned the GLP-1s, which is like the Ozempics or Trulicides, and you mentioned Synjardi, which is a combination of metformin with these SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, Farxigas, Jardians, Latro. I use a ton of them, mm -hmm. but you don't have to phrase it and whatever, this just may be the art of medicine, but mm -hmm. whatever. I don't have to phrase it as like, I'm using this to help you lose weight. Like I'm using it because my goal is to help prevent complications of diabetes and help you feel as good as you can, which means having blood sugars that aren't up and down all the time and that are in range as, as best we can do. Yeah. So you don't have to focus on that as the weight and the behavior is taking the medication and pairing it with the foods correctly and moving and things like that. And again, you may lose weight on the medication as the, I think the ad says, like some people lose 10%, whatever it is, mm -hmm. but that doesn't have to be the conversation. Like I use them with polycystic ovarian syndrome, just like we use metformin. Yeah. But the, the end all be all doesn't have to be like, you're going to lose weight on it because what happens if someone doesn't lose weight on it. Right. If that's like the goal, then, you know, that may not happen. Or if someone has a history of eating disorder, which again is like a high percentage of people that we don't really discuss that in the office. Unfortunately, it should be part of like the conversation of taking history. If you focus on the weight and say, I'm going to give you this medication so you can lose weight, but the person has a history of bulimia and binge eating disorder, mm -hmm. what is that going to do? It's going to derail their eating disorder that maybe they've been in remission from. Yeah. So we have to take that into consideration. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I will say there was some ease when he brought up the Sinjardi because he was like, I want to protect your heart. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds good. That I, I didn't realize how much diabetes and heart disease were so close and the things that you have to watch out for. And I'm like, oh, that's new for me. That's something yeah. that I appreciate learning. Because anytime I can walk away learning something that's even better, I'm like, I never even thought about if my cholesterol levels are out of whack. I've only had it go crazy once. And that was this last time. Any other time they've been in range. And so I'm like, I never thought about that. Okay. This makes sense. Doing a bit more cardio makes sense, even if it's not running, because I hate running. <laughs> like, I, I That's like understand. the example I always say is you talk about a partnership, right? So mm -hmm. if someone's in front of me and I'm like, oh, like you should go run every day. And it's like, yeah, but I hate running. But they won't tell you that. But you'd say, what do you like to do? Mm -hmm. Do you running? No, I hate running. Do not go running. Could you, do you like dancing? Like maybe you could take a Zumba class, like whatever it is. So that's like part of the conversation, not making. And also I think there's a lot of assumptions made about what people are eating yeah. and activity level just based on weight. Like I have so many patients that are larger body patients who like their movement is like amazing, whatever that means, but they're like doing yoga and spin and all this stuff and like, they're pairing all the right foods and have a very balanced diet, again, whatever that means for the individual. Sure. But they've been told by people, like, when they walk in the office because they have larger bodies, oh, you should really diet and exercise. And Dude, I just ran a marathon, like, two months ago. <laughs> right. Like, it's, a, it's amazing what we, the mind just makes up. And I think the more, at least I found as I started really working on myself, because I, I had a lot of really bad body image issues. And part of it was just the example. My mom wanted to be a model. And so I saw her go through the fad diets and the constant exercising and things like that. And then when you go through the wonderful ages of teenage years, you have all of those types of, of views and perspectives weighed on you. And then the beauty standards that are, are put on you and all these other things. And I had to spend a lot of time in my head just like unraveling all of that. 
and really thinking through, okay, instead of thinking about, oh, I can't run, you know, two miles. I haven't ran a mile, honestly, since I played volleyball. I but I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone. But like, no, it's one of those things where I want to like it, but I just don't. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even think I like. I would much rather go play basketball or like tennis or do yoga. To me, like some kind of like competitive thing that involves like a court and like a ball and yeah. But like people love it. I just can't get into it. Yeah, I did. I played soccer. I loved playing soccer, and so people would look at me like I was crazy, and I'm like. Yeah, there's just a difference between when you're stealing a ball from somebody or you're scoring or you're defending. Like there's just a bit more to it. And I understand that running helps my stamina and and my conditioning. And I did like cross country, but that was because it was scenic. So I'm like, I'm not really thinking about how fast am I going? It's just, hey, look at all this awesome stuff. My sister used to go running around our neighborhood all the time. I was like, it was more about the the memory and the connection that I was having than the actual action. So if it's that, okay. But just immediately go outside and start running. And it's Texas hot right now. So I'm like, definitely not doing that. But if it's on the treadmill, like I might. It's just one of those things when I'm, like you said, finding the joyful movement versus I need you to go do this. Because once you put that, I need you to do this, I'm like, do I really? Something in your mind that just flips, you know? And so I had to spend a lot of time in my head just unraveling everything and being okay with where I'm at. And then being okay that I don't look like this beauty standard. And then recognize, you know what? This beauty standard, it wasn't designed for me anyway. So I think I'm awesome because there's only one me. And if this is the version of me that I have, then I think it's great. And I should celebrate that. And I shouldn't worry about anybody else. Now, do I still have my days? Sure. Because I'm the minority from a sense of what the beauty standard is. But I feel like the more that I model that, the more that I'm able to make decisions for myself That's healthy for me, which is, yes, I can have an Oreo. No, I'm not going to eat the whole pack because I've come to this agreement with my body, with myself of what's going to optimize you versus weigh you down. And part of that is managing my diabetes and making sure that I'm doing things that aren't going to stress me out later. Because like you said, if I start stressing out, then my numbers are going to shoot up and all of these things. And it just becomes this this big cycle of things that takes everybody of working with our medical team on how to speak with us and being willing to share and advocate for ourselves too. Cause I, I do recognize that a lot of us don't tell you guys enough. We won't go in and tell you everything that's going wrong. We, sometimes we hide, sometimes we'll lie about if we're actually doing the things and then the numbers show and you're just like, yeah, you're right. I wouldn't do it. Nothing you told me to do. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the where the partnership comes in. But obviously that doesn't happen the first couple of visits, but if I've been seeing someone for five years and I know they're caring for like an elderly parent or like they're having a tough time at work or we just going through this pandemic, like I'm able to be like, all right, throw this one out. Don't even sweat it. Whoever's in the hospital or like your kids stressed out or whatever, that's it. Like have some empathy for yourself. You're struggling. Like we can adjust the medication or let's work through it. But you're not just like as good as like your A1C or whatever, your Mm -hmm. cholesterol. And, And I think that's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's very important. So before I let you get back to your evening, I have... Yeah, I guess technically two more questions for you, but because you are in the field of endocrinology, I, I definitely could not ask this question, but I would love to know whether it's somebody who's walked into your office or you ran into them on the street, what's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who's newly diagnosed with diabetes? Yeah, again, you know, about the misconception, I'd say, number one, it's not your fault. And number two, find things that work for you. It's not like a one size fits all approach and it's important to have a team in place that you you can work with 
and also recognize what your objectives are. If your objective is to be able to still live your life and manage your diabetes, there's like a lot of medications that you can use in conjunction with that. If you're really like adamant about trying not to be on medications, like you could try that too, but find out what your goals are. And it's not like a moral obligation for everyone to have health and to have the diabetes under control. So figure out what you want and then find someone that you can work with towards those goals and and don't be hard on yourself with it because it's a process. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's great. So where can people find you if they want to keep up with what you're doing, if they might be in the New York area and they need a new endocrinologist, how can people connect with you? So Instagram, as you mentioned, everything underscore endocrine. And then I have a website, Central Park Endocrinology, and I'm around. And I reach out and and hopefully this is helpful for people. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Dr. Dodell, thank you so much for your time. Um, I know you are a busy guy and I really just appreciate your perspective, both personally and professionally. I think this is a great conversation for people to hear and to know that there are those out there in the medical field who are doing everything that they can from their end to support and change the culture around health and weight stigma, especially because we know that's a a driving core for a lot of different industries. So thank you so much uh, for your voice. Again, I just found you on Instagram. So please know that what you're doing is reaching people. This is awesome. Thank you so much. And come visit New York for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to do it. I will be sure to shoot you a message when I know that we have the date solidified because I'm pretty sure like early fall we're supposed to be going. So that's a great time here to come here for sure. Wasn't that a great conversation? I'm, I can't say it enough. It's just super refreshing to see somebody who is directly in the medical profession specific for diabetes, be such an advocate for turning the tables on weight stigma and advocating for patients and helping patients come to terms with what works best for them and not try to push on them this idea that if it's just losing the weight that they'll be okay. So Dr. Dodell, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom and your expertise. I truly enjoyed the conversation and I can't wait for others to hear it and for you to just continue doing what you're doing once you have a break be sure to take a break (laughs) but other than that this was such a great combo you guys and i really hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did be sure to follow him everything underscore endocrine to see all the crazy things that he's doing and all the amazing things that he's doing so that way you can learn from somebody directly in the field on how we can work together until then this is the second to last episode guys Next week, it's season finale week. That's right. We have a season finale solo episode and my season finale guest. And I'm really excited for you guys to connect with them. They're very important to me. And I'm super stoked for us to have this conversation. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much for all of your support and everybody out there who's listened, shared, and been a part of the show. This has been an amazing season. And although it's ending next week, don't worry, we'll be back with so much more. But until then, I'll catch you guys next Tuesday.